0: Hello, America, and happy Tuesday. I hope you had a wonderful Columbus Day holiday weekend. We certainly had a lot of fun shows. I was really excited to have uh, Victoria Coates on the Saturday show, Mike Huckabee on the Sunday show yesterday, to have that really robust discussion about the border and why it is on the ballot in the fall election. And today, we're going to continue in the great trend line that those podcasts have given us. We've got two great guests. One of the CIA's best Russia experts, George BB, is going to join us. He's at the Quincy Institute now, one of the really strategic thinkers when it comes to Russia, Europe, war and security in America. And he has some really strong words for the Biden administration and where we find ourselves in this middle of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And then we're going to turn to our good friend Warren Connolly, great author, one of the legends of the civil rights movement, and particularly the effort to roll back affirmative action programs that make... College admissions, a race-based decision, something he believes is wrongheaded, and he has been fighting it consistently since the early 1990s when he got the University of California to eschew its affirmative action policies. Other states have done so. But now we've got two major Supreme Court cases, one involving Harvard, one involving the University of North Carolina, so a private college, a public college, taxpayer-funded college, privately funded college, Ivy League college. Their admission policies, their race-based affirmative action policies, are before the Supreme Court. The court's going to hear both of those cases, by the way, separately, with the idea that they're going to come up with one larger declaration about whether race-based admissions to college are appropriate, lawful, and constitutional at this moment in American history. That is going to be our conversation today. Two great guests, Ward Connolly on affirmative action and the increasing use of race for every policy decision. Equity seems to come up, even when it involves, I'm not making this up, hurricane relief. All of a sudden there's to be equity and hurricane relief, as Vice President Kamala Harris said last week. I'd like to ask Ward about that, a man who's fought for civil liberties and civil rights for his entire life. Is, are we wrongheaded? Have we made race a boogeyman that it doesn't need to be? We're going to ask that question of him in a little bit. All right. Now, before we get to that, two very important stories we had on the website this morning. I just want to Go over them quickly. First up, you heard Mike Benz first on the show mention this. We've done a deep dive on this. When the government got involved in this censorship, federally sanctioned censorship machine in 2020 with the Election Integrity Partnership, they sought some advice. They had partners on this, both from the Election Integrity Partnership side and from the government side. One of them is the Belfort Center at Harvard University. Now, the Belfer Center has a very important and famous co-founder. His name is Robbie Mook. If that name sounds familiar, well, he was the campaign manager for the Hillary Clinton for President 2016 campaign. And he was a central figure in the Michael Sussman trial, John Durham's trial, which ended in the acquittal of that Democratic lawyer, Michael Sussman. But in that case, he acknowledged in a very significant way that he and Mrs. Clinton signed off on the notion of sharing a key part of the Russia collusion narrative, the Alpha Bank secret Kremlin connection to Donald Trump one, which never existed. It's been debunked. And they spread it. They shared it to the media, even though they weren't sure it was true. In other words, it could have been disinformation. All right. So let's think this through. The Belfer Center and its D3P digital democracy project. It's is advising the Homeland Security Department and this partnership. In fact, it was one of the civil society partners for the EIP, the Election Integrity Partnership. And it's run by and founded by a guy who injected one of the most dramatic disinformation allegations ever brought into politics today, the Russia collusion story. That's right. You heard me right. That's exactly what happened here, and and I think it's worth taking a look at. We're going to do more on Robbie Mook and what they've been working on over the next several days. But a Hillary Clinton connection to that federally sanctioned censorship machine, which is just remind people what we've exposed in the last couple of weeks. There was a private partnership working with the Homeland Security Department, State Department to flag posts that they considered to be misinformation to the social media companies to get them censored in some form, either marked, labeled, deleted, blocked. In 35% of the time, their requests won. They were granted by the big tech companies. And we're one of the organizations they sanctioned. Just the News was identified as one of those that they were considering to be misinformation. What were we flagged for? We were flagged for writing a story about an affidavit, a sworn affidavit, a sworn declaration put into a court case where there was a hearing. If we can't cover things filed in a courtroom, we're in big trouble. And that's what this censorship machine flagged us for. But this whole machinery has a connection to Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Muck, who by his own testimony authorized the leaks to the news media after Hillary Clinton signed off on it, even though neither of them believed or were certain that the allegation, the Alpha Bank allegation was in fact true. That's pretty big news in my mind. And I think ultimately weighs into who are the people advising this Homeland Security censorship operation. All right. The second story is that today jury selection has begun in the trial of Igor Danchenko. He is the primary source for the Christopher Steele dossier. He's accused of lying at least on five occasions to the FBI. Now, the case is going to be very technical and narrow in the courtroom. It's just going to be about the technical aspects of whether the statements he made the FBI were lies were they false and then were they lie? Slies meaning did he intention to lie, did he intend to lie when he did it? That is a significant question for the jury to figure out. But the broader story is when you take the sum total of all the evidence John Durham snuck into the court file through motions and responses to motions, you get one overwhelming, irrefutable picture. And that is if the FBI had done its job and done it quickly, which in the case of an election they should have. They would have seen much earlier than before Robert Mueller declared no collusion in April 2019 that the evidence wasn't there, that this was a ruse built on the lies of Danchenko, the bad intelligence of Christopher Steele, and the intentions influenced by the intentions of the Hillary Clinton Democratic National Committee campaign, which paid the lawyers who then paid Fusion GPS, who then paid Christopher Steele, who then paid the sources to develop this false narrative that we now know to be Russia collusion. That is a bigger question. The court of law question is rather narrow. The court of public opinion question is very large. And we cover that in today's story. Take a look at that. Both of those stories are atop Just the News right now. Very important stories. One last thing worth noting. Tulsi Gabbard, just two years removed from running for president under the Democratic Party's banner, announced she's leaving the party saying it's now controlled by an elitist cabal. That stokes anti-white racism. They radicalize every issue, and they stoke anti-white racism. That's what Tulsi Gabbard, the person who tried to defeat Joe Biden, and the Democratic Party in twenty twenty, says now that she's leaving the Democratic Party. A very, very important um, development today on politics and the politics front. Tulsi Gabbard. All right, folks, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. When we come back up, first former CIA analyst and. Quincy Institute key player, George Beebe joining us, and then Ward Connolly, one of the great civil rights icons and one of the leaders of the effort to eliminate race-conscious admission policies from colleges and universities across this great country. We'll have both of them right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower Thanks to our good friends at BrickHouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. All right, folks. Welcome back for the commercial break. The war in Europe, the Russian war against Ukraine has become... Really, one of the great threats in recent global history. It is tipping towards a really dangerous moment. You hear that from the CIA, from the president, from Congress. We're at a critical crossroads. And our next guest, he is one of the country's premier experts on Russia, former director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Division and director of grand strategy today at the Quincy Institute, where they're always looking for great diplomatic solutions. We're talking about our good friend, George B.B. George, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, John. I want to have you give us your assessment. You were on the top of Russia for a long time for the CIA. You advised Vice President Cheney. You looking at this. What do you assess after this weekend of horrific violence, where the war stands and where the danger stands?
1: Well, I think we're we're in a new phase of this war that uh, is a lot more brutal, uh, a lot more dangerous. Uh, this war has been escalating, actually, for, for many, many years, well before Putin launched his invasion in February. And uh, we're continuing up that escalatory ladder. And essentially what happens is uh, all of the players in this war think that if they just get uh, a little tougher, um, the other side is going to sober up, realize that it can't win, and they'll somehow back down and we'll get out of this. But In fact, what's happened every time is um, the other side's responded by escalating. Um, And uh, where we are right now is the gloves are coming off uh, on the Russian side. Uh, They've mobilized the country. They're putting the economy on a war footing. And uh, Putin has unleashed a barrage of strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure. Um, And this is something that uh, the Russian nationalist crowd is applauding. They think that Putin has been far too soft, far too willing to seek compromise and not tough enough in dealing with the Ukrainians and dealing with the United States. And so we're, we're starting to see this war get a lot more dangerous. Yeah, it
0: is extraordinary to see. In this point of the war, Ukraine's infrastructure is going to be leveled. There'll be no victory in Ukraine, no matter how this turns out, if there's nothing left to operate the country on. And that clearly was one of the objects of Putin's attacks this weekend. You wrote a very powerful column, I think it was about a week ago, why Elon Musk is right. Of course, he's one of the people that's been advocating for, let's find an off-ramp. Let's find a way now to stop this before this gets out of, thing. think it gets malign these recommendations because, you know, it's easy to dislike Putin and Russia for all the bad things he's done. But you say he's right because the alternative to not having an off-ramp, not having a negotiated settlement is a lot worse, right?
1: Well, sure. And the alternative is uh, just what President Biden warned about uh, when he spoke to a private fundraising dinner recently and said, look, we're in the most dangerous moment that the United States has been in since the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, 60 years ago. And I think Biden is right and Elon Musk is right as well on this. Uh, The United States and Russia are on a collision course. And when that happens, uh, the danger that nuclear weapons could be used uh, and that things could spiral into a a complete strategic nuclear exchange is, is a real one. Now, the, the real question is, what are we gonna do about that? Uh, and there are many that believe, well, the Russians don't wanna talk, uh, there's nobody to negotiate with, uh, and you know, Ukraine should be making the decision about if and when to engage in diplomacy. Um, but the problem with that, of course, is A, it puts America's own security in the hands of Ukrainians and outsources that decision to them. And that's uh, something that I don't think any American president should do. Uh, but secondly, it uh, it ignores the role that the United States itself has played in this conflict. We're not simply a bystander. We're deeply involved in this war and providing not just weapons, but intelligence, training, logistics support, uh, military advice, targeting information. Uh, we, according to The Intercept, have Uh, boots on the ground in the form of special operations forces there. The New York Times has said that as well. So um, with that involvement, I think, comes responsibility. And the biggest responsibility that we have is to make sure this war doesn't escalate. And that's not something that Ukraine should be deciding. That's something that the United States needs to be talking to Russia about directly, to manage and defuse this crisis before it gets completely out of hand.
0: Yeah, and right now it's a proxy war, but the real danger is that the US and Russia end towards its a uh, collision of their own war, right? That this becomes bigger than Ukraine. What are the warning signs that, that we're moving closer to that direction?
1: Well, the Russians are saying quite openly that this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a war between Russia and the United States and NATO. Um, that's who they perceive Uh, is behind what's going on in Ukraine. That's number one. And if the Russians believe that's true, uh, that suggests that the dangers we could get in a direct confrontation are great uh, because the Russians perceive that they're essentially at war with us right now. Um, The second part of this is that because U.S. uh, technology and U.S. weaponry and U.S. intelligence are so deeply involved in all of this, if the Russians continue to struggle on the battlefield and feel that they're in real danger of losing, their temptation to go at that that source of support for the Ukrainians is going to go up considerably. Now, what would that mean? It could mean things like striking directly uh, NATO military supplies as they're coming into Ukraine. It could also mean going after the space-based assets, that are so vital to uh, targeting uh, Russian uh, military forces. Uh, All of those precision-guided weapons that are so advantageous to the Ukrainians depend on American satellites to provide them with the data that they need to function. Those satellites are vulnerable. Um, The Russians have already warned, publicly and explicitly, that any satellites that are traveling in geosynchronous orbit above Ukrainian airspace are legitimate military targets, they've said. So they have already sent messages here that this is something that's on their minds. Uh, And you can imagine what might happen if Russia did go after those uh, space-based assets in some way.
0: Well, that that would be an escalation. It would be something unlike in, we've ever seen in American history. A space-based war, or at least space-based battle as part of a war, would be just extraordinary. One of the things that it seems that Putin is calculating doing here is that he can outlast whatever weaponry we're sending. It's sort of a game of attrition. That probably doesn't have a very good ending for Ukraine in any circumstance, because Putin can destroy so much of what keeps the country running every day. Is there anything that Putin would respond to right now? What would be a diplomatic gesture that could slow this down for a second?
1: Well, uh, the biggest thing that the Russians have said they've wanted, and this is something they've said for many years uh, and continue to insist on, is Ukraine's geopolitical neutrality, um, meaning that it's not part of a military alliance with NATO or uh, some sort of bilateral military alliance with the United States. Um, This, they've said consistently, is their single most important goal in all of this. Um, And that uh, is something that the United States has refused to discuss. We have said that is off the table. Um, And uh, that, I think, is the central issue that uh, could not solve this war. By itself, it's insufficient to, to bring this war to an end. But it could provide a context in which many of the other issues that are involved in this war become that much easier to address. So that's something that I think the United States is going to have to grapple with.
0: Yeah, pretty remarkable. And the, the idea, and maybe it's, it's built by Putin's propaganda machine, is that the goal of the United States and NATO is to encircle Russia, trap it, and Ukraine is the forefront of that strategy. How widespread is it? Because obviously if the population believes it in a big way, it gives Putin greater populist authority to keep executing this war. Is that perception that Russia is being encircled by a West? large enough in the Russian population to drive some of the policy decisions going on there?
1: I think absolutely it is. It's, it's a widespread belief. Um, and it's something that uh, now uh, CIA Director Bill Burns uh, wrote about uh, way back in 2008 when he was uh, US ambassador in Russia. He wrote a a cable to then Secretary of State uh, Condoleezza Rice. Uh, This was published in uh, Bill Burns' memoirs, where he uh, described uh, potential Ukrainian membership in NATO as the brightest of all red lines within the Russian political elite. And he said he had found no one uh, across the Russian political spectrum that uh, supported it. So this is actually a widespread and longstanding uh, belief in Russia.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of Americans don't understand that that's an emotional and populist pressure behind Putin that maybe we're, we're not getting a good visibility into. If not Putin, who else? I guess the danger here is that even if there were regime change, which could happen, and I think a lot of people would cheer that on that there could be even harder liners that come up behind them. Do we know, if Putin were to fall, what sort of leaders might come in behind and, and what they would pose to, uh, as a threat or uh, a negotiating partner to the United States?
1: Well, that's a very difficult thing to predict. Uh, the situation is quite fluid. What I will say is that Putin uh, is under pressure from his nationalist right uh, along the Russian political spectrum, he's not considered an extremist. He's considered more of a, a center-right figure. And many of the people to his political right think he's simply been too soft, too unwilling to use the kind of decisive force that uh, they believe Russia needs to use to win this war in Ukraine. And one of the things that I think has has been an unintended Effect of Putin's decision to uh, to mobilize Russia partially as he called it is that uh, Parts of the Russian political spectrum which prior to this point were not really engaged in this war uh, Now have a direct personal stake in things Uh, They might be going off to war members of their family might be sent off to war This is no longer something being conducted by others who are professionals in the security elite. Um, it has become uh, a popular issue in Russia. And what that means in turn is a lot of people are starting to focus on the competence with which this war is being conducted. And they're not happy. Uh, Putin is being criticized by people for not conducting the war in a competent manner. Um, and Uh, This is eliciting a patriotic response in Russia, but that response is not pro-Western or or liberal in any way. It's it's nationalist, it's patriotic, and it's not a group of people that are pleased with the United States in any way. They're looking at, at US technology and US advice that are killing Russians on the battlefield. So when we talk about the prospect of some regime change in Russia, Putin being replaced. I think the current trends suggest to me that we're likely to get someone who is a a harder line president, uh, even more pro-Western, but also someone who is focused on much greater competence and efficiency in all of this. That's not a very good combination from the point of view of American interest.
0: Now watch what you wish for phenomenon might be something we have a great degree of Regret if this were to play out that way. And that's what I hear from a lot of people today, that if Putin fell now, we might end up with a worse character. And that's kind of a scary thought. Soft power has been such an important part of the U.S. strategy. I guess it starts with the fact that we have clarity of mission when soft power is most effective, clarity of consequence if someone acts wrong. But it seems like all the bad actors don't have any fear, any concern about Joe Biden. North Korea's out there firing missiles, China's saber rattling all the time near Taiwan, Russia invaded Ukraine for a second time while Joe Biden's in office. Why is it that there is a disregard for American soft power right now and all of these actors are playing bad at one moment?
1: Well, When you use the term soft power, what that means to me is the, the values that the country stands for, how attractive those are to, to others, how much the power of our culture and society uh, attracts others and inspires emulation abroad. And I think the reality is that uh, we had a great deal of that kind of attractive power um back uh thirty, forty, fifty years ago. But more recently, uh America has been uh viewed much more as a decadent society, one that's past its peak, one that is to a great degree at war with itself culturally, um one that is not exporting you know, freedom and liberty, but uh values that other countries find threatening to to tradition, to family, uh, to the strength of society's bonds. Um, and so the United States is not standing for the kinds of things in the world today that it once did. And that's, that's a problem, obviously. It's a problem for our ability to be uh, a constructive force in the world, but it, it's also something, that should prompt Americans to look at what's going inside our society itself and ask ourselves what's going on here that is uh, problematic.
0: Yeah, culture does matter. It's interesting in in the world stage, countries do look at our culture, look at our own internal squabbles and make extraordinary assessments that may be driving some of this. Clarity of voice is always important, clarity of objective, clarity of what the United States wants. It's not clear to me, and I've, I've read all the transcripts of the last two, three months trying to figure out, I can't quite tell what Joe Biden's endgame is for this conflict with Russia. Am I isolated in that, or is that a growing perception? And if so, how do we get to a point of clarity?
1: Well, I'm not sure that we ourselves have uh, a clear objective in mind. Uh, we certainly know what we don't want. We don't want the Russians to defeat the Ukrainians uh take over that country resubject it to russian hegemony Uh, and we are doing a very good job of preventing that outcome but beyond knowing what we don't want i'm not sure we've articulated to ourselves what we do want Um, we you see vague comments here and there about uh, wanting to weaken russia to make sure that its economy and its its defense industry are so damaged that it can't do something like this again. Well, that has already been achieved to a great degree. Uh, Russia has been weakened by this, not just materially, but perceptually. Uh, Nobody in the world right now thinks that uh, Russian military power is is much of a threat. Um, So uh, the next question here is, um, what's our plan for getting out of this? How does this war end? And uh, I'm not sure that we have a clear idea of, of what that looks like. And that's something that I think we need urgently to uh, determine. We need a plan for uh, getting out of this situation because as Biden himself has warned, we are on a trajectory toward a head-on collisions with the Russians. And that would be a catastrophe for everybody involved. And it's something that we need to think very hard about how we avoid.
0: Yeah, the idea that we're this far into it and we don't have the, the stated objectives, the out, the outcome that we say we want to achieve is, is I think probably unnerving to a, lot, a large part of the world. When when I talked to some other world leaders in the last week, they were saying, we just can't tell where, where this is headed. We don't know where the Biden administration is. That kind of stems from a larger thing That's been going on with this administration. They never really have produced the mandatory strategy document for its foreign policy and security strategies. I think the first president in very recent memory that not to have done so. Are they doing these things because ambiguity is part of their policy, or, or is it because they're just so disorganized and don't have agreement among themselves?
1: Well, I'm not sure. Um, my understanding is that the Biden administration is going to unveil its national security strategy this week. Uh, So, uh, your question, I think, is uh, quite timely. Uh, We'll see what that says. Um, Many of the strategies that uh, the United States has employed over the past several decades have been basically lists of all the things we plan to do, but not really uh, coherent arguments about priorities, Um, what's most important, what's less important. What kinds of trade-offs are we willing to make to achieve our most important goals? We act as if we can achieve everything that we want to achieve uh, all at once, and we act as if our resources for doing so are unlimited. Um, And that just doesn't correspond to reality. We have limited resources. There's only so much that we can do, and that means we have to set priorities. Um, We can't afford to be in a two-front war with China and Russia. We can't afford to have Russia and China allied against us in the world, uh, acting to undermine our interests everywhere. Um, So we need a coherent strategy, and I'm going to be very interested to see what the Biden administration unveils this week.
0: If you were to get five minutes with President Biden, uh, given the world that we're now in, North Korea firing missiles, Iran can constantly trying to assassinate our political leaders, Russia with this extraordinary and accelerating aggression against Ukraine, What's the advice you'd most give him to try to right this ship?
1: Well, um, we have to set priorities, as I said, and the most important priority by far for me is avoiding nuclear war. Um, That means in turn that the United States has got to have a plan for exiting this crisis that we're entering into with the Russians over Ukraine. And you can't do that through military means alone. You're not going to coerce a nuclear superpower into saying uncle and surrendering. Um, that era uh, in world history ended when uh, nuclear weaponry was invented. So uh, we're going to have to marry together our military support for Ukraine in, in this with a diplomatic track. That's what President Kennedy did uh, to resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's what we need to do today, and I think that has to be our top priority.
0: Well, it's a funny thing, George, as I watch this play out today, in the last six months, have almost been predicted by the great book that you wrote in 2019, which, by the way, predated the invasion of Ukraine, but The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, It was spot on. We're now in the middle of that warning cycle that you were giving to us. This is a dangerous moment. Do we have the leadership in this country and, quite frankly, in Europe to get this right, to avoid that nuclear catastrophe? Do you see someone rising up? Can Biden do it? Are there people on the other parts of the world stage that come to the rescue?
1: Well, I think what's happened is that uh, over time, Washington's foreign policy elite has grown apart from uh, the bulk of the American people and American voters. A gap has emerged. Um, and I think that gap has to be narrowed. Uh, Washington's foreign policy establishment has got to be listening to what uh, the American people believe is are their vital interests, our national interests. Uh, and um, until that happens, I think we're going to continue to have foreign policies that serve a very narrow slice of our country at the expense of our broader national interests.
0: The failure to define the American interest in broad and compelling terms is perhaps the greatest failure of the last two decades. When I talk to people, they say, that's, that's where this problem starts. And. George, your book had this right on the money. I look back now and say, wow, what an impression book. We're so lucky to have your expertise on this show, and I know we're going to need you back real soon with all of the craziness going on in the world today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Great honor.
0: All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk to our good friend Ward Connolly about two affirmative action cases about to hit the Supreme Court right after this.
2: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's byt dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Always excited to have this next guest on our show. He is really a true thought leader. And in an era where there's so much insanity in the public space today, whether it's racial and gender preferences or critical race theory, he is a sage voice of wisdom and common sense. He is the founder and the president of the American Civil Rights Institute, and he is a great author as well. Many great books, including my favorite, one of my favorites, Creating Equal, My Fight Against Race Preferences. He is Ward Connolly. Ward, great to have you on the show, sir. John, it's a pleasure to be with you. You have done such amazing work for so long, pushing back on the notion that everything in America has to be about race, something that the left has really invigorated, reinvigorated in the last few years. But one of the key places where you've won victory, starting with University of California, then moving to Michigan and Washington, Nebraska, Arizona, is attacking these racial quotas in universities and education. And now there's a big case before the Supreme Court. Tell us why that's so important.
2: Well, the Supreme Court has uh, has increased our problems. In 2003, when we went to the court about affirmative action, the court allowed the use of race and said that it was a com- matter of a compelling state interest, diversity that is, and that ruling has Uh, allowed universities to use race in a very perverse sort of way, John. Uh, The court said you could use race as one of many factors. But in the real world, one of many factors means everything. Because when you're looking at a person and deciding whether to use their race, height doesn't matter and where they were uh any nothing else really matters but their color. And uh, that's what we're faced with right now. And, John, I began to see this when I was serving my sentence, I call it, on the Board of Regents of the University of California. And uh, they were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And... Um, it just means everything to the university to have a black face or a brown face, primarily a black face, that they can show on their brochures. It's it's institutional window dressing for them, and it's wrecking a lot of lives, uh, white and Asian primarily. A lot of people are going into debt to send their kids across the country to a school that is equivalent to berkeley and it's just a mess and president biden and harris vice president harris have adopted the pursuit of equity as their uh motto and that means race this and race that and it's it's a far cry from what President Kennedy said, uh, which was that race has no place in American life or law. So uh, I just, I think this is bad for the country, really bad. And I've been fighting it.
0: It's really a fascinating dynamic to watch the left, because I think when you go back to the 60s, the left and many in the right as well, fought to get equal opportunity, equity of opportunity. But today, it seems like the goal is to flip that on its head and make it equity of the outcome. Everyone should have the same outcome. How did that argument get flipped, and what are the forces behind it?
2: It got flipped because the American people are uh, primarily whites during this period, felt, that, felt a certain sense of guilt, I think it was, Uh, that's how I would describe it, John. And they wanted to allow diversity to occur. This diversity sounds so seductive. I mean, sure we want diversity, but we want non-discrimination more than I think we want diversity, but we didn't fight back. We didn't push back. Um, we've been to the, been a knee to the, uh, cause for celebrating our diversity. And as a result, we've broken the law in many cases, um, because the University of California at the bottom of virtually every legal document says that the university does not discriminate based on race, sex, color, sexual orientation, blah, 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 blah. Uh, John, it's a lie we discriminate big time because the university has a view in its mind of what the student body ought to look like, what the faculty ought to look like, what the staff ought to look like. And they do their dastardly deeds and nobody fights it. I won't say nobody, but it was pretty lonely when I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this, this is not legal. You're, you're a lawsuit waiting to happen. And uh, you get called Uncle Tom and a racist and all of that, and nobody wants to endure that. And as a result, the universities go about their work, and they call Asians dull. Uh, they don't contribute to diversity because they're dull. And, and I heard those things, and I just couldn't believe that this day would ever come, but it's here, and we see it manifested in the appointment of a Supreme Court justice who, uh, who's uh, apart from her um, belief system, is a competent person. He could have been appointed absent the use of race, but she's appointed because the president believes that it's long overdue, in quotes. Uh, that's that's from the 60s. Uh, it should have. You know, that's what we would do in the 60s, John, but it's now popular. Uh, Vice President Harris, last week, in responding to a question about uh, Hurricane Ian, said that, that, that uh, race would be used for, you know, people of color and low income people, because equity is more important than equality. Those weren't her words. But if you look behind the curtain, that's what she means. And equity is all consuming. And it is going to destroy the very culture that the founders created and that we have believed in. And that I grew up in, I mean, I was born in leesville louisiana in 1939 with a c on my birth certificate not for connerly but for colored and uh we worked through that sort of stuff but here we are now using it big time
0: and what's more amazing is obviously this has been in academia for a long time you were fighting this back in the 1990s at university of california It has seeped into the corporate world in a really significant way, perhaps most significantly since the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020. But you now have major blue chip corporations that have fellowship programs and scholarship programs, loan programs. That say whites and Asians need not apply, that only African Americans or Hispanics can apply for certain benefits. The fellowship being example of one, I think that was Pfizer. Another one is a no down payment mortgage, but only available based on the color of your skin. How did that leap occur from going from the university world where critical race theory was, you know, bouncing around for decades to the corporate world where, you know, customers are affected by the services and decisions made here?
2: we don't respond to it. I think if you put this out to the American people for a vote, they would reject it 60, 40 easily. But it has the ring of nobility. Diversity has gone unchallenged because it sounds like the right thing to do. Uh, It doesn't, it sells products, yes. But if the opposition came forward as I believe it's there, then they would disband that approach in a heartbeat. But when you think you're doing the morally right thing, and it looks good to everybody, and it does look good, uh, then you continue doing it. And our president has given this the imprimatur of the right thing. uh, And we have unfortunately not had any counter to it. The Republican Party is has the right message, the right policies, but they have not been competitive in countering the alternative. There is a lot of resentment in the Democrat Party and independents to Trumpism. We have Trump phobia in my view, and that has totally paralyze our political process and we cannot resolve that in the middle of a midterm election when the people are deciding whether they want to make a change and I believe they do but when along comes a decision about about abortion that gives energy to the left and we cannot resolve the fundamental problem problems within the parties, and so the parties are inept and incompetent, uh, and the people who are supposed to make decisions in our democracy, we don't have the capability of organizing ourselves except on Twitter and Facebook and shows like yours, John. So so we're up there as, go, as David fighting a Goliath in the bureaucracy and a politically inept system. Uh, I'm sorry to, to wander off into this, but I've had to analyze this in a deep sort of way because in the remaining 28 days, I'm going to spend every waking hour to try to tell my fellow Americans, wake up, folks, because this is not headed in a good direction.
0: The famous quote from Albert Einstein, silence is complicity. That's one of the problems that the conservatives and Republicans have really struggled at owning the narrative. They've yielded the narrative to the left for so long that that's why major public policy changes are, are more easily achieved now, because the narrative has been dominated by one sound. There is an interesting dynamic in these two cases that are before the Supreme Court. One is involving Harvard. The other is the University of North Carolina. They severed these cases in the summer Part of the reason is Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the newest justice, the one Biden just appointed and got confirmed by the Senate, she had to recuse herself from the Harvard case because she previously had been on the school board of overseers. Interesting dynamic that there could be one less liberal on that first Harvard case. Is there anything to be watching for with the cases being severed?
2: Well, I uh, I believe that they would not have taken these cases had they not felt that the 2003 Greta case was was wrongly decided and they now have the votes to do the right thing. Um, They did not sever them in my view because of her. Uh, They severed them because they, one is private, one's public, Uh, a lot of things that go into that. The court is just as political in many ways as any other institution. These are human beings who arrive at the court because of political considerations. And we now have a court, the one big thing that we can think, that I can think former President Trump and Mitch McConnell for, we now have a court that is morally positioned to do the right thing on this issue. Uh, as long as they don't uh, get wobbly, as we often do with regard to race. The logic is there. The 14th Amendment is there. Although Justice Brown is saying that the 14th Amendment was for black people, <laughs> not for everybody. And and uh, that may find itself into the court. But I am to move on from your question i'm optimistic that that uh, we're going to get a good decision but the court i hope that justice thomas takes it and and goes a little bit beyond these two universities and talks about the compelling reason of equality the the founders had a reason for focusing on we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, John, because equality gives people an inspiration and an aspiration on behalf of their country. Patriotism flows from equality. I know when Jim Crow was ended, the first thing I looked for when I applied for a job out of college were the words, we are an equal opportunity employer. And equality matters. And when you get into a, a paradigm where whites and Asian Americans believe that they're going, their backs are against the wall, you've got over 50% of the population who don't believe in the ideals of the country. That's not healthy. That's not good.
0: Yeah, the the system is rigged against them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and that's where we are. But I think that the court is going to write the ship.
0: You have a big speech coming up later this month that will be, I think, a preview for the arguments and the decision that will come down. What message do you want to convey to America with that speech?
2: Thank you for that question, John. It's a great one.
0: I want to convey to my
2: fellow Americans as I candidly sit at the doorstep of going into the heavenly gates, I hope, that uh, you've got to believe in the country. You have to have a sense of decency about your fellow man. And Ronald Reagan once said that in the eyes of God, we're all equal. But in America, that's not enough. We have to be equal in the eyes of each other. And that is really the cornerstone of how we're going to rebuild the country away from this Trumpism and anti-Trumpism and and uh, the notion that we don't go to a person's inaugural because we don't like him and, and impeach, impeach, impeach. We have to get away from that so that we respect each other, and and I think that the ideal of equality creates that paradigm. It really does. And if you believe in the country and you believe in in the notion that we are a great country, and I really do, then you have to have boundaries in our lives, our personal lives, and in our national life. There have to be boundaries. I I learned that when I was growing up, and one boundary is. This is the law, and we'll follow the law. We'll follow the Constitution. That is our law. That will be my message uh, on October thirtieth. Uh, and I just hope that that I'm capable of delivering it. It's only ten minutes, probably, but but I think that this is a defining moment for the country. I don't think we're going to lose the country. Totally, but if you have people who don't believe in it, you have de facto lost it.
0: Yeah, that is such an important dynamic. And the we in America is gone. It's us and them every day, and that that is bad. When you talk of people like Ronald Reagan and George Mitchell, they, they knew that we was more important than us and them, and that has been completely destroyed over the last two and three decades. Last question for you. The fact that the government, in the form of the Solicitor General, will be on the side of race-conscious admission policies, basically injecting race into there. How does that strike you that the government thinks this is okay when our founding fathers probably almost certainly, and probably Martin Luther King almost certainly, would have frowned upon the way we are right now?
2: That is political. When President Bush, uh, Biden, ran for president for the third time and was destined to defeat, he was rescued by a black man. James Clyburn, who gave him a lifeline, he pledged then to be the most progressive president in American history. Say what you will about Joe Biden, but as a lifelong bureaucrat, really, he keeps his word. And and I believe that the government has become enmeshed in equity-building primarily because that's what Joe Biden said he would do. Race uh, seeps out of every pore of progressives. They want to transform America. That is what uh, Senator Sanders promised. And the progressive mantra is that we are a racist society, that white supremacy Uh, originated this country and that it's still there and if you're a progressive, you believe that whites white adjacent should be brought to the front of the line, uh, back of the line and that whites and uh, that blacks and browns, that crayon box needs to be brought to the front of the line. That's wrong, but that is What has to be fought and we have to be not afraid to say it. I don't like saying that those words, but that's where we are, John. And and uh, we have
0: to now accept the challenge. Yeah, we do. This is a major tipping point in American history, and your speech on October 30th, I think, will be watched all across the country. Such important words, such important words of wisdom, board. We're so honored to have you on the show, and can't wait to get you back, perhaps right after those arguments. We'll have you come in and referee what went on before the court. Thank you, John. That is great to be with you. God bless you. We'll talk to you real soon. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Thank you for joining us. Always so proud to be a part of this family to share with you in the podcasting, the TV show, the news stories, the VIP club. Hey, if you want to join the VIP subscription club, this is a very cool thing. First off, You won't get any dancing ads or autoplay videos. You'll get an ad-free website. And you'll get a -a once-a-month opportunity to sit and talk with me about the biggest news of the month. And that is just a mere $4.99 a month, $44.99 a year. Just go to justthenews.com slash subscribe. When you do this, every dollar you put towards this, your subscription, your VIP club membership, goes to supporting our and breaking the sort of stories that we break on a daily basis. All right, that wraps it up for us, folks. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike.